Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, here at Apostles Church, our mission is to love God, love people, and to lead others to do the same. And if this is your first time here, we'd love to talk to you more about that and what it means to be a part of Apostles Church. I'd like to encourage you, if it is your first time, we have these Connect cards. And while we don't have them in the seat backs in front of you, we do have them over at the Connect table, uh, or one of the pastors or myself would be happy to share one with you. Today we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so if you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ and you weren't able to grab one, uh, we're not going to be passing anything out. And so the communion elements are just around the side of the building here, and that'll be towards the end of service, but I'd encourage you to grab one. A few announcements. Uh, as we do each month here at Apostles Church, we are gathering on the first Wednesday of the month for our monthly prayer and worship night. And now for the last four or five months, we've done this via Zoom. And last week, if you'll recall, that's what I said, we were gonna be doing it via Zoom. However, we've decided to gather in person, outdoors, for our monthly time of prayer and worship. And we'd encourage all of you to join us. And so that's gonna be this Wednesday night, August 5th, uh, starting at 7 p.m. And rather than here in a parking lot, uh, getting dark, uh, we're gonna be meeting at Pastor Ryan's house in his backyard. So he has a large backyard, there are gonna be chairs provided there. Uh, maybe some refreshments, and it'll be a time of prayer and worship, and so we'd encourage you to join us in that. And if um, the exact details of that, by the way, will be sent out via our email list, and so if you're not on our email list, this Connect card is a great way to give us your email address, or you can uh, send an email to info at apostleschurchsb.org, and that way we can get you all those details and any other changes that we might have for our worship service. The last announcement I have is just a continuation on giving, that we won't be passing around offering baskets. We do have a basket over here at the Connect table, and then you can always mail a check, you can give online, there are other options for that as well. So again, it's a joy to see all of you this morning, and if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we are going to be reading today from Galatians chapter 4, continuing in our study of Galatians. And so as you start to turn there, we're going to be Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 12. And as you find your place, as we do here at Apostles Church for the honoring of God's word, please stand once you have reached Apostle, or Galatians chapter 4, and I will do the reading for us. Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this gorgeous morning that you've given to us, the Lord's Day. We're so thankful for this church family that 
we can gather together with and worship you in song and study your word together. Lord, we pray now as we have read this passage of scripture that you would minister to our hearts, that you would speak to us, Lord, and that you would give us understanding in your holy word. And God, we pray as we always do that your word would find fertile soil in each of our hearts and that we would be a people who are ready to not just hear, but hear and obey. That we would be a people who are constantly, by the power of the Spirit, growing and becoming more and more like Jesus. So Father, please bless our time together in your word now. And again, continue forming and shaping us by the Spirit into the people you've called us to be for your glory and our eternal good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. So good to see all of you here today and great to hear us worshiping this morning and I think clapping a little bit more on beat today. So thank God that Tim was here with some percussion for us to help us out in that department. But wonderful to be with you. Great to uh, be able to get back into God's word and continue this series that we're doing in the book of Galatians together. I heard the story of three boys who were in the schoolyard and they were bragging a little bit about their fathers as boys sometimes do when they're young. The first boy said to his friends, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a poem and they give him $500 for it. Second little boy said, well, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a song and they give him $1,000 for it. The third little boy said, I've got you both beat. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon, and it takes eight people to collect all the money he gets. Like this boy, people have many misconceptions about ministry and what ministry is. Some people think ministry is maybe about money. It's a way that you can make great profits, and that would be an understandable conclusion if you look at, unfortunately, some sectors of what is called the church. Um, Others think that ministry is perhaps a way to accumulate some power and influence. For others, it's a way to kind of bolster their own ego. This morning, we have a text that presents to us what true, faithful gospel ministry actually looks like. In this section, we're going to learn a lot together as a church family about what it looks like to do gospel ministry. That's the title of the sermon today, Gospel Ministry here in Galatians chapter 4. And in this text today, Paul is taking a bit of a turn in this letter. Um, If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been unpacking some pretty deep, careful theological truths. And so we've been kind of interacting with the Apostle Paul, the theologian, if you will. And this morning, he sort of shifts and turns a corner for these eight or nine verses, and we see instead of Paul the theologian, we see more of Paul the pastor. And Paul here is going to recount the original circumstances that brought him to the region of Galatia in the first place when he went and planted these churches. And he's going to point out how he was received there uh, by the, the people of Galatia. Up to this point, Paul's been aiming to win these people over at the level of their heads But this morning, he's trying to win them over at the level of their hearts. Of course, a passage like this will minister to pastors, people like me who are in uh, the ministry, if you will. But I believe this passage will be relevant for all of us here this morning for at least two reasons. 
Um, Number one, I think for all of us as Christians, this passage will help us to evaluate our own church that we belong to and the pastors that God has entrusted this church with. So it'll be an opportunity for all of us to evaluate this church. As members of this church, uh, we all have a responsibility to make sure that this church is being faithfully led and that the gospel is being faithfully preached. So again, I think this passage will be relevant for us in that regard. But perhaps even more fundamentally, this should be relevant for all of us because all of us have been called to the ministry. Um, It's not just those who do this for gainful employment or those who are professionals, if you will, in the ministry. Every single Christian has been called to the work of ministry. Um, One of our sort of orienting verses about our philosophy of ministry here at Apostles Church is in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13, and it talks about this very idea. We read there, and he gave, speaking of Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what Paul is saying there is that God has given Um, spiritual leaders to the church, but the purpose of those leaders is to equip all of the saints for the work of ministry. So every single one of us is called to be about ministry. And if we're going to be faithful to that great calling of all of our lives, we've got to understand what it looks like to do true gospel ministry. So this morning I have for all of us seven insights about gospel ministry. Now, I know some of you are panicking. You're thinking, hold on, if a normal sermon is like three points and that's 40 minutes long, are we really going to be here for two hours? No, we won't be. It's seven insights, but they'll, for the most part, be relatively short today. So we'll try to keep this on track for about 35 minutes. Verse 12 begins with a call to action. And really, um, most scholars of Galatians point out this is kind of the the first official call to action in the entire letter. And Paul is now asking his readers who he's written this letter to, to do something. He says, I entreat you. That word means I'm begging you, or I'm urging you, or I'm pleading with you. And then here's the call to action to do what? He says, to become as I am. Now, if you've been tracking with the argument of Galatians up to this point, Um, The the concern here is that these false teachers have come into these churches. They've infiltrated these churches in Galatia. And what they've been telling these former pagans who converted to Christianity is that if you really want to be a member of God's people, if you really want to be a Christian, you have to, yes, follow Jesus the Messiah, but you also have to become Jewish. You have to submit to the Jewish law. Paul has seen that idea of submitting now to the Jewish law once Christ has come is actually a form of slavery. So Paul is telling these Galatian believers, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I'm begging you to do. Become like me. Meaning become a person who sees themselves as actually, in some senses, free from the law of the Old Testament. I'm not bound by that anymore. I'm free to walk in the freedom that is ours in Christ, to walk in faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. And so he's telling these Galatians, this is the call. This is the call to action. Become as I am. Walk in that freedom. Don't submit to that slavery. Be confident in your sonship because of your faith 
in the true Son, Jesus Christ. Then he says, For I also have become as you are. And this brings us to our first insight into gospel ministry this morning. Again, Paul in verse 12 says, For I also have become as you are. So the first insight into gospel ministry is this. Gospel ministry contextualizes. Gospel ministry contextualizes. What I mean by that is that even though Paul was himself a Jew, he freely lived among the Gentiles. He crossed over the ethnic boundaries between Jews and Gentiles to enjoy fellowship with these non-Jewish people. We know he had table fellowship with them. We know that he did life with them and he did it on their own terms. Of course, I don't mean by that that Paul entered into their pagan worship practices or that Paul entered into their sinful practices. No, what I mean by that is that Paul entered into their culture. He entered into their customs. He entered into their very lives rather than imposing his own cultural values and preferences on these Galatians like the Judaizers were doing. Now, what does the word contextualization mean? Here's a definition from Pastor Tim Keller. Contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and particulars of the gospel himself. Now that's a mouthful. What's, what's Keller saying? He's saying that contextualization is, is our attempts to make the truth of the gospel understandable and persuasive to a particular culture of people. Um, Traditional ways of contextualizing would be things like language. I mean, the fact that we're doing church today in the English language is a choice of contextualization. We live in an area that is predominantly English-speaking. It would be a terrible choice for us as Apostles Church to conduct our services in English if this church was not in Santa Barbara, California, but was in another part of the world where they don't speak English. We would would be failing in our abilities and our attempts to communicate the gospel in a meaningful way. So language impacts this. The way you dress, of course, can impact this. Um, If I was invited to speak to a group of CEOs at a country club, I probably wouldn't show up in shorts and flip-flops. I would probably wear a suit, to be honest with you. Conversely, if I was trying to minister in an impoverished city in, let's say, Central America, I probably wouldn't wear a really nice suit. I'd probably wear something more casual. If we were ministering in the Middle East, women would have their heads covered. Um, Customs can impact this. In some places in the world, you'd remove your shoes before entering somebody's home. Men would never speak to a woman alone that he's not related to, etc. But I think um, for us here in Southern California, trying to think about contextualization, the important thing to get out of this is that we've got to ask ourselves if we really want to be faithful and effective with the gospel, how can I most effectively address this culture? So let me give you one example. Let's think about um, methods of of evangelism. God has called all of us to preach the gospel. He's called all of us to try to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what are the most effective ways to do that in this culture? Now, if your answer to that is, um, well, let's do what the Apostle Paul did in the book of Acts and let's just go out and 
stand in public areas and just stand and preach the gospel out loud in a public area. Um, and let, let's make that the way that we're going to reach people. So after church, let's go on State Street and just start shouting at people that are walking down State Street. Well, you see examples of that in the Bible, but that's probably not going to be a very effective way to reach people in this culture. In fact, it's probably a failure of contextualization. Those marketplaces that you see Paul preaching in in the book of Acts, those marketplaces served the purpose of having public dialogue. That was part of what took place there. So that was a very normal place in the ancient Greco-Roman world to sit and talk about a religion or a philosophy or an idea. And people would have received that well. So the question we have to ask is not, do we do exactly what Paul did in exactly the same way in 21st century Southern California? The question is, what are our appropriate and effective ways to proclaim a message in this community, in this culture? Answers to that would be in lecture halls at universities. Answers to that would be in religious institutions, in event centers that you put events on in. Here's another one. Social media is a very acceptable form of communicating ideas about everything. Politics, diet and exercise, religion, ideas, all of those things are very normal things to be communicated on social media. But again, the point is contextualization matters. We have to think about forms and ways and methods of communicating the truth of the gospel that are persuasive in this culture. Nowhere is Paul clearer about it, this, the importance of this than 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here's what he writes in verses 20 through 23. To the Jews, he said, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not, my, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So if we want to, again, be effective gospel ministers, we have to be students of this culture that we live in. And we have to seek to communicate the truths of the gospel in the most effective ways possible. So this is what Paul did in Galatia. And guess what? It was effective. We see that by the response of the Galatians to Paul's ministry. He was positively received by them. We see that in these verses. As Paul's reflecting back on his initial experiences among the Galatians, he writes, you did me no wrong. In other words, you treated me very well when I first came to Galatia. They treated him well. And that didn't have to be the case. We see that in verses 13 through 15. We learn there that the reason why Paul ministered to the Galatians in the first place we see the reason it's, you know, it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And this brings us to our second insight for gospel ministry. Gospel ministry trusts God's providence. Gospel ministry trusts God's providence. What's implicit in Paul's words here is that Galatia wasn't his plan. It wasn't where he was headed. Most scholars think he was probably headed to the big cities of Asia Minor, like Ephesus. So he wasn't planning on going to Galatia. 
But he says that it was because of a body ailment that he actually preached the gospel to these people in the first place. In other words, God used some sickness or some suffering in the Apostle Paul's life to redirect Paul to Galatia to preach the gospel there. Now, a question we've got to ask ourselves is, how do we respond when our plans don't work out? Because that wasn't Paul's plan. He didn't have Galatia on his mind. Georgia wasn't on his mind. This isn't what he wanted to do. And certainly, like all of us, he had no desire to get really sick or suffer in some other way. So how do we respond when things are not working out according to our plans that we have for our life and our ministry and the way we're going to be effective? Is our response to be frustrated or bitter or angry or say, well, God, if this is what this is, then I have no desire to serve you and follow you? What about instead of being able to perform the plans that you want, all of a sudden you find yourself with a serious sickness or some other form of suffering? Well, here's Paul's response to it. He has plans, great big plans for God. Me and Barnabas are going to go plant churches. We're going to build the kingdom. We're going to Ephesus. And then he gets sick or he's suffering some other malady. And Paul sees that as an opportunity to leverage for the kingdom. He has to go to Galatia and he says, well, I'm here. I'm sick anyway. I've got to lay low for a while in Galatia. Might as well preach the gospel here. Might as well see if there's some fruit to be had here in Galatia. He seizes it as an opportunity. Rather than looking at this change of circumstances and saying, well, God's against me. I'm frustrated with God. He looks at it and says, well, God obviously has different plans. And I trust in the providence of God. I know that his plans are better than my own plans. So I'm going to yield. I'm going to submit. I'm going to course correct. And I'm still going to bear fruit. And what was this bodily ailment that Paul's suffering from? The short answer is we have no idea. (laughs) We have no idea. He doesn't tell us. We know it was a bodily or physical ailment that he was suffering from. Uh, Some commentators suggest it could have been the result of persecution. Maybe he was beaten and bloodied and broken and he needed to lay low in Galatia and try to recuperate. Um, To me, that seems unlikely. It doesn't fit with the narrative in the book of Acts. A lot of commentators historically have thought maybe Paul had eye problems. Um, Notice in verse 15, he talks about how these Galatians would have gladly plucked out their own eyes and given them to Paul if they were able to. And then at the end of the book, in verse 11 of chapter 6, Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And some scholars see maybe an indication that, again, he's writing with large letters, if that's what he literally means. And, um, And maybe, again, he had bad eyesight. It should be noted, though, that this expression on, I'd pluck my eye out for you, um, it, it honestly only means that there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. It's sort of like the expression, I'd give my right arm for you. Um, you're just simply saying there's nothing I wouldn't do for you, and it's likely that that's what Paul means here. He's just saying, you guys received me so well, there was nothing you wouldn't have done for me. Other scholars think perhaps the problem was malaria. That maybe when Paul got into the swampy coastal region of Pamphylia, he caught malaria or another disease there. And then he had to go to Galatia, which was a higher region and a drier climate to go and recover there. And that's very possible. But whatever it was, we read that Paul's physical ailment was a trial to these Galatians. Probably what Paul means there is that it would have been very tempting for these pagans in Galatia To see a guy come rolling into town who's full of sickness and weakness 
and go, this guy's clearly not a representative of God. This, this is clearly a sign of divine displeasure if this guy's trying to say that he's a messenger of God. Why would God's messenger walk into town sickly and suffering, perhaps beaten up, whatever the issue was? So Paul says, look, even though my bodily ailment was a great trial for you, you guys received me well. And this shows us how powerful God was at work through Paul, that they didn't scorn or despise him. Instead, they received him as God's messenger, even as Jesus Christ himself. And this is powerful evidence of God's work because Jesus said as much in Matthew 10, 40. Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So Paul's asking now, as he transitions there in verses 15 and 16, what's changed then? When I first came to you, You received me as God's messenger. You received me like I was Jesus himself, resurrected and entering into Galatia. What in the world has changed now? Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Here's Paul's question. has Has your perception of me, your heart toward me shifted just because I wanted to tell you the truth? And this brings us to the third insight we see this morning in gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is uncompromising with truth. Uncompromising with truth. As we've seen in this letter, the Apostle Paul cares deeply for these believers in Galatia. He wants nothing more than to be reconciled to them because he knows that there's some relational strain here. And he wants to be reconciled together. He loves these people. They matter to him but he will not compromise the truthfulness of the gospel to achieve that reconciliation. He's unwavering. He's inflexible with the truth of the gospel. And the reason for that is because there is too much at stake. Paul knows that what's at stake here are people's eternal destinies. That's what's hanging in the balance. Paul's not going to just say, well, whatever, you can believe whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Let's just all get together and sing kumbaya. Let's have harmony and peace on earth. That's not Paul's heart. There's too much at stake. So he loves them enough to actually confront them in the error of their ways. And he's willing to stand up for the truth of the gospel and say, listen, I know these false teachers have come in and they've said that the way to be right with God is by obeying the law, but that is not true. The way to be right with God is only by putting your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins on the cross, who was raised again three days later, and who is alive right now in heaven and can give you his spirit when you put your faith in him, period. It's faith alone in Jesus. And Paul was vehement in defending that. He was also truthful with them about these false teachers. Remember back in chapter one, he said, listen, If they're coming preaching this kind of gospel, let them be accursed. He was standing his ground. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. People's happiness and misery hang in the balance. Gospel ministry is willing to lose friends to save souls. Paul was uncompromising with the truth. Number four, moving into verse 17. Gospel ministry is not a personality cult. Paul says this in verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So he says they make much of you. 
That expression means that they're flattering you. They're showing incredible interest in you. Some translations translate it, they're zealous for you. So these false teachers that had come to Galatia were very zealous for these Galatians in the churches. They wanted them. They were trying to court their favor. They were trying to flatter these Galatians. And Paul says they were doing that for all the wrong reasons. Although those false teachers probably didn't know it, Paul knew that what they were actually doing to these Galatians is they were shutting them out. By saying to these Galatians, you need to come underneath the law of Moses to be pleasing to God, they were actually cutting these Galatians off from Jesus and from the people of God. So Paul says, they're actually shutting you out. He's also implying here that these, Galat- or these false teachers were trying to pull the Galatians away from the apostle Paul, away from their father in the face. So they're shutting them out from the apostle Paul. And he tells us their motive. He says, it's so that you may make much of them. What does he mean there? He means that what these false teachers wanted is they wanted the praises and the adulation of these Galatians. They wanted these people to become fiercely loyal followers of them. They wanted a group of people who were devoted to them that were singing their praises. They liked having emotionally dependent disciples. And some people want that in ministry. You can see it. Some people want others to be emotionally dependent on them. Some people want to be the end all of your spiritual problems. Some people want to be perceived as the spiritual guru who has has all the answers. And they want other people to come to them constantly with all of their issues. They want to become that person who other Christians cannot live without. But this is extremely unhealthy. This is super dysfunctional. Gospel ministers don't seek to make others dependent on them. They seek to make others dependent on Christ. He's the Savior. We're not the Saviors. It's not about trying to make people loyal to me or loyal to you, dependent on you. Of course, we help people. We serve people. But the way we help and serve them is by saying your dependence needs to be on Jesus, not on me. I can't save you. So gospel ministry is not a personality cult. It's not how many people can I get to sing my praises and to to look up to me as their spiritual guru. Gospel ministry is pointing people to Jesus. This segues into our next insight, number five, in verse 18. Gospel ministry is not territorial. Paul writes in verse 18 that that it's not bad to have someone be zealous for you. So there's nothing inherently wrong with having a person who's deeply interested in you, who's zealous for you, who cares about you. He says that's not bad at all, as long as it is for a good purpose. And Paul says this is true whether he's present with them or not. In other words, Paul's beef with these false teachers is not that they're stepping on his turf. Paul's not territorial. He's not upset that other people have come into the churches he planted and are now taking over the discipleship in that church. That's not his beef. The problem he has with these false teachers is he knows that that they are abusing the Galatians and that they're misleading them, that they're actually pulling them away from faith in Jesus Christ. That's the problem. Paul would be completely happy 
if other people, other leaders had come into these churches and had discipled these Galatians and loved them faithfully and helped them to grow and mature in their faith, Paul would rejoice over that. How do we know? Well, obviously he says it here, but here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 from a prison cell. He gets word as he's in prison that there are some people out there with less than noble motives who are preaching the gospel. And the people who tell Paul that, they assume that Paul's going to flip out and be super angry about this. And here's what Paul says. He says, look, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, he writes, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed And in that, I rejoice. Paul's point is, at the end of the day, God's going to sort out the motives of people's heart. If they're preaching the gospel faithfully, I'm happy about that. The the kingdom's advancing. Good work is happening. I can celebrate in that. So the application for us, family, is that we at Apostles Church can and should celebrate the successes and the fruitfulness of other great churches in this city. Okay, if God's blessing another gospel-centered church in Santa Barbara, that's no threat to us. That's a win for the kingdom. We should rejoice. We should celebrate. We should be praying as we do on a regular basis in our corporate gatherings. We should be praying for God's blessing on other churches not called Apostles Church. We should celebrate that. Those are net wins for the kingdom. We should pray as we often do as a church family that God would plant new churches in Santa Barbara that are gospel-centered and that God is blessing. That is no threat to us. We don't need to be territorial. We can celebrate. At the personal level, this means that when somebody else is being blessed in their ministry, when their ministry is fruitful, when they're being raised up in the church or being used in ways that you might want to be used in, you don't have to see that as a threat. You can celebrate that and say, praise God. If God's using that person to counsel that couple and it's actually helping their marriage, praise Jesus. I don't need to work in that that field. God's already serving that purpose. We can rejoice in each other's fruitfulness and we should okay insight number six i got to be honest and faithful with my time here gospel ministry is transformational ministry this is so important gospel ministry is transformational ministry verse 19 my little children for whom i am again in the anguish of childbirth until christ is formed in you oh Admittedly, Paul introduces a rather shocking metaphor here for himself, knowing that he's a man. Maybe not so shocking in the culture we live in today, but certainly shocking 2,000 years ago. He pictures himself as a woman giving birth. But he actually says that he's in birth over these Galatians for the second time. So he's, he's experiencing these labor pains a second time because it's not apparent any longer to Paul that what he was trying to produce in the first place actually occurred. We know in this letter that he's nervous about whether or not these Galatians who he thought were saved are actually saved. So he says, look, I'm like once again, like a mother who is going through the hard and difficult and painful labor process in trying to make sure that Christ is actually formed in you, that Christ is formed in their hearts. And family, this is what gospel ministry is all about. This is the goal of gospel ministry, that people are actually being formed into the image of Christ. Now, there there are churches that 
think that gospel ministry is about having massive responses to evangelistic appeals. That gospel ministry is about how many people maybe raise their hand and pray a prayer to commit themselves to Jesus or maybe come forward at an altar call to give their life to Jesus. And as long as that number is good, we're doing effective gospel ministry in this church. But family, you got to understand at best, that's the starting point. At best, that's the starting point. That is not the measure of good gospel ministry. That's a starting point. In fact, Jesus warned in the parable of the soils that many people would respond joyfully and enthusiastically to the message of Jesus at first, only to eventually fall away and prove themselves to not be Christians at all. Ultimately, gospel ministry is about seeing people, yes, receive Jesus, make a decision to trust Jesus by faith, and then be formed into the image of Christ, looking more and more like him. We see this everywhere. Here's Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is what ministry is about. We, we are not just saying, well, how many people can we get into our church? What we are after is seeing people have Christ in their heart by faith and seeing people conformed into the image of Jesus. Gospel church or gospel ministers rather are not content with how many churches they've planted. They're not content with how many People are sitting in the chairs. They're not content with how much money's coming into the offering or any other metric than Christ formed in the hearts of people. One of our guiding statements here at Apostles is our focus is not on building a big church, but building big people. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't bless faithful churches and make them big. And we pray that God would give us greater influence. But our focus is on building big people that our hearts would be growing and expanding in faith in Christ. And that year over year, we would look more and more like Jesus, that our marriages would reflect godly marriages, that our children would love Jesus and follow him as Lord. And we've got to make sure that that never changes. And listen, that's not just my responsibility. All of us have to make sure that that is our focus. Okay, number seven. And then we're done. Gospel ministry is relational ministry. Relational ministry. Notice how Paul is addressing these Galatians. In verse 12, he calls them brothers, or in the Greek, it could be brothers and sisters. In verse 19, it's my little children. In verse 20, listen to his heart. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. The point I'm making is, Paul knew these people, Paul loved these people, Paul valued these people, Paul 
cared about these people. They were not numbers on an attendance spreadsheet. They were not dollar signs. They were not cogs in the wheel of his churches that were helping him further his own ministry objectives. They were people. They were valuable. They were precious to the Apostle Paul. He knew them. He loved them. He could see their faces in his mind's eye as he was writing these words. He knew their names. He remembered whose homes he stayed in. He remembered who rendered medical attention to him when he got to Galatia. He knew these people. They were dear to his heart. Gospel ministry isn't about followers. It's about family. It's about knowing and being known. It's about actually having relationships with one another. So what we have to be committed to if we're going to do gospel ministry is knowing and being known. We have to be willing to get to know the other people in the body and to serve one another at the level of relationship. This is the only way to effectively do ministry. You need what can be called relational currency. If Paul didn't have relational currency, he could never say the harsh things he said in Galatia in this letter and hope these people would still be with him. But it was because of that relational currency. It was because they knew the time he had spent with them, the investment he had made in them, the love that he had shown them, that Paul could speak the way that he did and address the serious issues in their lives and help these people actually grow in their faith. We have to be relationally driven. We know people, we value people, we love people, and we serve people for no other reason than that they are people. They matter. They're valuable to God. They're made in his image, and they have to matter to us. So here's the conclusion this morning. We are all called to the work of the ministry. We're all called to be gospel ministers. There's no exceptions to this. And it is the great calling of all of our lives. Today, we've been shown many aspects of what this looks like. Seven, of course. None of us are going to do this perfectly. All of us are going to let people down. Every single one of us are going to say the wrong thing to somebody. Or we're going to say the right thing in the wrong way. Or we're going to say the right thing at the wrong time. Because we're humans. And we're broken. And we're flawed. But at the end of the day, gospel ministry isn't about us. It's about pointing others to Jesus. The only one who will never fail never disappoint, never let down. And he's the only one who's worthy of people's complete dependence on him, not to mention he's the only one who's actually strong enough to bear their complete dependence on him. And so as we end our worship service this morning, we end it with our hearts and our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. This morning you should have grabbed, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've put your faith in him, you should have grabbed communion elements on your way in. If you haven't, but again, you have put your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation. Um, I would encourage you now as I'm speaking for the next 30 or 60 seconds to head to the table over there and grab these elements. But Jesus gave the church the ordinance of communion or the Lord's Supper so that we would always keep it about him so that our focus would always be on Jesus and we would never lose sight of what Jesus has done for us. Of course, the bread that we're going to eat in a moment, the bread that we're going to eat is symbolic of the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us. And 
The juice that we drink, the cup, is symbolic of the blood of Christ that was poured out and shed for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so as we celebrate communion, our hearts and our minds are once again focused in on the sacrifice of Jesus who bore the penalty for our sins on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven and you and I could be brought into right relationship with our Father in heaven. And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer in a moment and we're going to have the worship team come back up and they're going to lead us in a closing song after, but I'm going to lead us in a prayer right now. Again, once again, orienting our hearts and our minds on Christ and we'll receive these elements together. So would you please pray with me? God, we are so thankful this morning for your love toward us. Lord, there are many different evidences in our lives to show us how much you love us, but there is no clearer evidence than the cross of Calvary. As we look to the cross and we see that you were willing to sacrifice your one and only son, it reminds us of your great love. And Jesus, as we look to Calvary's cross, we're reminded of your great love for us, that you willingly laid down your life for our sins because you knew there was no other way for sinful man to be reconciled to a sinless and righteous God. And so Jesus, we celebrate and we worship and we give you the honor and the glory and the praise due your name because of your sacrifice that has allowed us and made us righteous before God and has made us children of God by faith. And so this morning as we celebrate and we worship, we once again renew our faith in you, Jesus. You are the king of our lives. We are following you. We trust you. And we pray that you would help us to do that with ever greater faithfulness day after day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Family, let's partake together.